What is up, designers, and welcome back to the Grand Designer Podcast. The podcast is all about taking ideas out of your head and manifesting them in the world in a form of mass movements. My name is Dallas, and uh, this episode today is going to be all about leadership. Like, I'm sure it's, it's more so about more than anything. Whether there's a set, like, if how can you become if you don't feel like you are? someone who's who qualifies to be the leader of your mass movement you know man it's a lot to this episode it's a lot to unpack i'm still wrapping my mind around it but i just said hey i'm going to start the recording i'm almost 100 percent sure every child like there was a samsung commercial a while back uh a samsung commercial it was called The Way We're Wired. You can see it on Google. It's like for the S3. A long time ago, this commercial came out. And, uh, you know, the commercial essentially was about, you know, things they would say in the commercials. Like, you know, and all the kids wanted to be Batman and, and not Robin. There are no giant, giant foam fingers that, saying, that says we're number three. You know, the commercial was about champions and band championships and band leaders and band number one. Being the most significant. I'm sure most kids listening to this podcast grew up wanting to be number one. You wanted to be the strong leader that everybody deferred to and followed. You wanted to be the hero in your own movie. Um, But maybe somewhere along the lines, you've realized there is, or seemingly there is, because we're going to debunk this truth uh, or this myth rather in this podcast, that there is a, a genetic predisposition that results in someone being a natural born leader. I remember that was a disposition or, or, or had a, a false belief that I had for a long time when I was younger that, you know, things like leadership and charisma were things that you were born with and that you couldn't actually learn. Okay. But uh, for me, just like for a lot of you, it started, you know, a long, long time ago. Some of the, my earliest memories, you know, uh, everybody wants to be like, you know, the leader, you know, the strong type, the type, this charismatic type that everybody refers to, that everybody loves, you know, the leader. What else can I say? Uh, And that's something that coming into society, that's something, you know, especially after playing all these different video games, you know, the halos and things like that, you know, that was somebody that I thought I was. I thought I had strength. I thought I had courage. I thought I had bravery. I thought I had all these things. I thought I was, you know, the knight in shining armor for everybody. <laughs> and uh, I remember going into elementary school for the first time and having my mother walk out of the door. And uh, she kind of snaked me. She snaked me. I'm not going to lie. Because I, I do recall she said she wasn't going to leave. And then she left. And I burst into tears, man. It was my friend Mark. Um that stopped me from crying but man I was so scared I was so scared and and from that day on you know I would discover more and more factors that uncovered the reality of my situation the, the supposed reality of my situation that I'm a lot more meek a lot more timid a lot more introvert than I thought I remember man getting to school and for the first few years of school like I really couldn't speak to anybody have you experienced this before? Is this something that you're familiar with? You, you, you're like, you're stuck. You want to speak. You want to socialize. But when you think about it, you're stuck. Your brain is overwhelmed. You're scared of the idea of getting out in public and actually, you know, just everything is just frightening, I guess, you know, and, 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 it, and it's tough just to go over and speak to somebody. It's like the biggest situation in the world, heart racing, everything, mind going a million miles per hour at all times. You know, and I don't know where these things come from, but that was my situation. I didn't have a lot of clarity in my mind. I had a lot of fall thoughts going a million miles per hour. And I remember one particular moment in memory where this was particularly emphasized. I was in fourth grade, you know, and I had made it through fourth grade through a flurry of, huh, through a flurry of a rampant and frenetic and frenzy mind that I couldn't control somehow. Just bumping through grade after grade after grade, trying to be the smallest I could, trying to trying to hide as much as I could, trying not to be noticed, trying not to be exploited, and not let not let people see that this part of me is weak, you know. And I remember getting to the fourth grade, and we were on this trip to Marshy Point. I remember this day vividly as ever because I was talking about it to Alexa. It was pretty embarrassing. 
um, I was walking down the, you know, Marshy Point is like, it's a marshy point, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. It's, it, it's a marsh, which is like, if you don't, if you, if, if you were born in the middle of the United States, you never seen a beach, you never seen a marsh, you probably don't know what it is, but it's like a swamp, but it's not a swamp, it's a marsh. And uh, they got like things like birds, like blue herrings, you know, the birds with the long legs that walk like divas, they got those things. And turtles and things like that, uh, swampy, swampy place. But in the swampy place, they have this like this boardwalk that cuts through it. And so what we were doing, we were going walking through the boardwalk, which was one of them. I really liked that trip. I miss field trips. You know, we watched the people churn butter. Well, that might have been in St. Mary City, and that also might not have been the most appropriate con- comment. We watched them like make seeds and grains, things like that. Um, we watched people do all these types of farmer country things that you know. We're so removed from that time, other than if you live in the Midwest and you suck. Uh, it, it's just, it's just not, it's just, it's just so foreign to us. Uh, we were walking through the Marshall Point, taking samples of the water and stuff like that. And I was enjoying my trip. I remember that day so vividly. It was like a, it was like a, it had to be like a spring day because I'm in school, obviously, so it's not summer. Um, only my brother went to summer school because he sucks more than people in the Midwest. But yeah, it was like a sunny day. Like, bro, it was like probably like 70 something. 80 something nice day outside everybody's laughing school teachers and chaperones are going around in different groups we having fun we got i, I got a packed lunch from mama you know msa's is already done it, it, it was a light feeling you know that light feeling that comes at the end of the school year like yeah we chilling we about to be out you know it was that kind of feeling but still in my mind like uh most of society probably i think feels this way there has to be something like i'm like the moment is so fragile <laughs> Like, everything is so fragile. Like, I'm like, something's going to happen. You know, it's always a terror around the corner. And uh, if you wonder what what the heck does this have to do with leadership, I'm, I'm going to tie it in. Don't worry about it. I promise you. I'm just uh, recounting. I mean, these are some of the things you can relate to, right? I mean, you, you know what I mean. Um, Man, getting ramped up. Just think about it. I, you know, I was always anxious. Mind going a million miles per hour. And this, but this was the first time it was triggered. I remember when I was sitting there. And I was walking. I don't remember who started it. It was either this guy named Ryan or this guy named Nigel, you know, which I, I don't know. It was just a strange situation. Like one of them just walked, was walking beside me and he just looked over at me. Bright sunny day is it. And he asked me if I was scared of something. And the only thing my brain heard was scared. And I was like, what? He knows I'm scared of everything in the world. And I got paused and I started to like kind of spaz like. Uh, scared? No, 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 I'm not scared. And then this boy named Joe comes over. And he said, you scared? You scared? You scared of me? And I was like, uh, uh, uh. And then another boy came over and was like, you scared? Like, like they were just playing with me. It was just funny. But for some reason, like, when I was younger, and even still, some of this day, like, my brain, like, didn't really grasp the concept of, like, I don't know, social cues and the way people function in society. It was freaking weird. I was like, what do you mean I'm scared? Why are people saying this? And I just burst into tears. Like, my brain just thought of everything in the universe. It went to the edge of the universe and back in one second. My brain raced for the first 20-some years of my life. You know how it feels to have your brain, like, just going and going and going and going and going and going. So much to the point where at the end of the day, you just feel exhausted every single day. And just like, man, it's it's a really, uh, it takes a toll on you when you feel like that. And it's easy to get, like, triggered into something like yeah, I just burst into tears. And like then it was like, man, what's what's the matter, man? We just playing. Like, why are you acting like that? You know, everything for me when I was younger was a big deal. And so I continued along that trend and through, uh, you know, pretty much grades after that, fourth through eighth uh, into ninth grade up into high school. I really said I can count on my hand how many conversations I had to people that weren't already my friends in elementary school and middle school. Like, I didn't really have a lot of like conversations like standing out was just such a terror. How could you ever be a leader? How could you ever be strong if you never stood out? And I remember even particularly, because I have, I have younger brothers. Like, I remember my younger brother would, would probably, I think he was coming to the school uh, the next year. Oh, we're four, we're three, four years apart. My older brother was in the school when I was in sixth grade. And I remember just like really not wanting to be seen in my weak, meek, you know, soft shell, Mr. Krabs form. Like, I didn't want to be seen like that. And even with my brother, when I, uh, when, 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 you know, with my younger brother, 
because uh, in elementary school we rode the bus together. That's what what it was. Um, and I would like one of my biggest fears at the time was to have them recognize that I was just like, like a like a pushover, like a blower, like somebody that was like spineless and like scared of everything in the world. And a lot of these fears, you know, have lived with me even through high school. But you know. I, I, I kind of live to deal, learn to deal with them in ways that I, I want to explain in a bit. If you're feeling this way, um, yeah. So my brain just kept racing. Literally, like I've had more thoughts than most people had in their entire lifetime—random, stupid, fearful thoughts—in like one year of my life back then. It was insane. Um, but when I got into high school, you know, here's the thing: I always felt like I want to be a leader, but I just wasn't born with the qualities of a leader. And I, or I didn't know, like I wasn't smart enough. You know, I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't handsome enough. I wasn't cocky enough. I wasn't, you know what I'm saying? I didn't have any skills or anything interesting about me. I just thought I had to have something, you know, either be born with something or to build something, have some type of knowledge or expertise so that people would just automatically just throw themselves at me and just defer to me like, oh, Dallas, you know everything. Let me follow you. Let me, let me lead you. And um, I remember getting to high school, and um, I started learning from these guys named uh, Owen Cook and you know the rest of the crew at RSD. And I started to go through their videos, and what they taught was real social dynamics. And the 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 gist of a lot of their videos were talking about how do you become the person that's the leader. So I'm kind of just watching these videos almost at first for like the entertainment value. I'm like, I like him. I like his videos. Um, I like everything that's going on in this production. And, um, but some of the things that they're teaching to me, like that anybody can be a leader. And I'm just like, like it, there were a lot of false beliefs in my mind that were barring me back from experiencing some of the things that they were saying. And so, because I feel like I said, I felt like you had to be born with a lot of these things that you just had to be that person. Um, or you had to gain something. You have to be important. You have to gain your status from something outside of yourself. Um, because it really, that's all leadership is. It's like you have the most status in the room, so everybody defers to you. Uh, but, you know, even going into high school, that was a little bit of a difficult experience for me. Because it was like, man, I was the poorest one in every room I went to. I was the poorest one in every room I went to. And I dressed like the poorest one in every room I went to. When I was at the bus stop, they drove past in their cars. And they thought that was a game. That was funny poorest one you know what i'm saying well uh you know this is just how perceptions work especially when you're younger and so you're brown so you're probably also the ugliest one or this is some of my false beliefs and assumptions that i had at the time um i just felt like raggedy and out of place and as an escape to some of these things because i didn't only feel that way in 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 this environment um i felt this way everywhere i felt this way at home you know, and my prerogative, if that's the word, was just to disappear and be as small as possible. But I didn't want to do that anymore. And the seed of not wanting to do that anymore started with RSD. And so I started wrestling because I was going to do something that, you know, just I just wanted to do something. I just wanted to just just try something. And my first year of wrestling flew by and it was like bad. I, I sucked. It was trash. But then my second year came around. And I remember I run the JB County Championship at the end of my second year. And, man, it was wild. One thing that I realized from the, winning the JB Championship was, oh, snap. You do get a little status boost when you win things. And so in my mind, even unbeknownst to me at the time, it's all clear in hindsight. It's like win equals status. Win equals love and affection that you already that you need but you don't have. And so that sparked the gear, you know, me to change gears and really want to wrestle hard. Because I wanted the love, I wanted the appreciation, I wanted to wear the, the medal around my neck. And the wrestling community started to be like a family to me. Um, and so I started wrestling. And I started wrestling hard, I started wrestling all the time. It was the only thing that I could think about. And that's usually what happens when we get our first taste of status. But, you know, funny enough, throughout the years of wrestling, I built up so much wrestling knowledge and acumen. But the funny thing is that cheap hides like that cheap grabs of status you know searching for ex external like acceptance it might work sometimes but it never lasts and so my junior year of high school my junior year wrestling that cheap high that i was chasing that constant 
you know, like, you know, neurotic, oh, somebody love me, somebody love me, appreciate me, I did this, like, it started to crack down on me, my brain, like, the problem was that I was deriving status, like, I was doing this to get a cheap high, and it didn't, it it wasn't something because of the, the nature of that, that slowed down my brain, and so it was still going a million miles per hour, just like, love me, love me, love me, love me, love me, and, uh, my junior year, I started to crack down, and it wasn't a good sight. And this was doubled by the fact that all my life, I had thought my expertise was 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 the point, you know, in which I'd gain the most status. Like if you know the most, if you win the most, you gain status. But the funny thing is, I went in my room the junior year, and despite being the most knowledgeable wrestler on the team, or even the best wrestler on the team in terms of skill, there were people in the room that were still the points of deference, that were still the greater leaders. And that just kind of turned my head, like, and it, like that blew my mind. I'm like, man, I did all this work, and they still love these other people more than me. They're still more proud of them. Coach is still touting, you know, man, Cullen is the man. Cullen is the man. Rock. He dyed his hair with the cheetah print, and everybody goes wild. You know, Cullen, Cullen that's my guy. But, uh, you know, Cullen was what I would refer to as the natural-born leader. Okay, Cullen was somebody that was like, you know, he was just he was just the guy, you know. Um, he was like, uh, you know, just particularly for that demographic, you know, he was a football player. He was big. He was built. All he did was, you know, lift weights. You know, he was, uh, you know, we're gonna keep it a hundred on this podcast. He was white, blonde, blue eyes. Like, you know, they loved that stuff. He was all American. Okay. Who don't love all American? I love all American boy, right? Um, he was a, he was a, he was he was built. He was a, he was a sirloin steak. You know what I mean? He he was he was he was the leader that you see in the movies. You know, remember the Titans? I never seen that movie, but yeah, that's like okay. <laughs> but that's like the opposite of what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I know I know the boy in the movie named Sunshine. I don't think you call Colin Sunshine, but he was he was the dude, and I was like, you know, and, and the funny thing is, I thought that I could undercut. His, the, the the natural br- brilliance of his leadership by these cheap scammy ways because I thought like if I gained and a lot of people think this oh I'm gonna get the girl if I have the money it's in the money I'm gonna get this Lambo and they're gonna love me and a lot of these celebrities that think like that what happens to them they string themselves out we get these cheap we 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 just try to go after these cheap status boosts by Hitting things or accumulating things, and that was me. I was like, I was like trying to accumulate wins. I was like blazing. I was torching people through that year, but he was still the leader, and I wasn't. And that was like the existential crisis that happened on you know a level that went unnoticed to me for a long time. But it was something that was like, it was it was it was it was like what? Like I don't know. It was just it just affected me in ways that I can't even explain. Like it got me feeling like. And it's funny because my mind even then was so contorted to the fact that I thought like, I thought like it was still because they had things that were more than me. You know, I'm like, oh, it's because they have boats. It's because they have big houses. Because they have money. People will always defer for them. You know, uh, you know, even even in ter- even ter- in terms of like, and these are false beliefs. I mean, things that are not true. But it's like, oh, it's because he's white. White people love white people. It's like all these things that I was thinking. Like I thought it was like. I just felt like because of all these natural advantages that people have, it was impossible for me to be the one, you know. But um, I remember just going back to the archives and that summer. It wasn't really because I got uh, I had unwinded to the point where my life was going to going into crash and burn. I got like straight eaves or something like that. They kicked me off the wrestling team. Um, it was not a good year. It was not a good year. I, I, I was on punishment to like July. I had ringworm all over my body, hair falling out of my head, pink eyes so many different times. Like I was not in a good place. You know, I was I was I was, you know, I was a broke person. I was I was going through some hard times. I remember sitting the, the quarter three and four of that year, I sat in a complete daze, in a complete shock. Like I like I watched somebody in front of me get blasted. Like my mouth was just hanging open. And I was just kind of in a daze. And it, it it didn't help that when I got kicked off the wrestling team, the other wrestlers were, like, roasting me, like, flaming me. Like, man, you so dumb, man. How you get kicked off? You was going to da-da-da-da-da, you know? And I kind of just receded that year. And uh, even when I wasn't practicing, you know, I watched a lot of wrestling videos, but I had kind of 
progressed back to my roots and started watching some of the RSD videos and some of the things that they were talking about. And they kept preaching that same old mantra. Look, boom, this is what you got to do, man. You got, you know, leadership isn't something that, you know, that is accumulated in these objects. Leadership isn't something that's natural born with status is something that you exude because you decided to. And that's, like, that's what they keep teaching me. I'm like, okay, uh, sure, Tyler, sure, Owen. And uh, I think it was coming into that senior year, I started to really embody some of the things that they were saying and add them into my life. These ideologies, just even just subconsciously, because I had heard them for so many years prior, it was like, you know, I'm at, at the bottom. I don't know who I am. I, you know, if I'm going to find some solace, I'm just going to defer to somebody who's smarter than me. And I remember senior year coming in, you know, the, the, the tide started to change. You know, I remember the first day of practice, I was just sitting there. I was just chilling because after that, you know, winter of being broken, then that summer of rebuilding, I was just cool. And Coach Cross came, Cross stands in the middle of the room. Everybody's gathered in the huddle, hustle and was like, hey, look, everybody, da, da, da. And so uh, juniors, uh, sophomores, freshmen, y'all coming in here, y'all might be new, y'all might think y'all whatever, but this Dallas right here, he's the best we got. That's what he said. I'm like, oh, me? I'm the best we got? I knew, but thanks. Um, <laughs> it's a joke, but, you know, that's what he said. And even that compliment hit differently at, at that point in time. I was like, yeah, it's cool. It's great, you know, because I was, you know, I had come from a place of, like, trying to get the love from outside of me, and it wasn't working. But I felt like at this point in time, it was just like I had let go of that theory. And I was coming into a little bit of a wholeness. I had come into a little bit of a self-acceptance. And I started to feel the power in myself. Like instead of trying to like get these cheap ways to get status that are outside of me. Am I making sense with this? I hope I'm making sense in this. Which is just kind of off the cuff. It's kind of also an emotional experience. So I'm just like tripping over my words and trying to understand. But you know, uh, it, it was even I don't know. It was crazy because that year, like, like I don't know. I was like I was one of the team captains, just one of them. But it almost seemed like. You know, people just deferred to me like automatically. There was respect and a love and admiration mutual, by the way, because everybody that was on that team, whatever they felt for me, I felt for them tenfold, you know, but 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 it was there. And it it started to manifest in different, you know, other different places in my life, like socializing that year when I really just kind of let go. It's like the little Chinese finger trap that you put your fingers in and you try to pull out, but you can't get out. But when you push forward, you just come out. It's kind of like that. When I stopped trying and stopped trying to do things to prove the quality, you know, to qualify myself, when I stopped trying to qualify myself to the society around me, things just started coming more easily. A lot of my, you know, you know, junior year, I was lonely. I was, I was screwed my junior year completely. But my senior year, a lot of the social relationships just started to blossom. They just started to come together. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it was just like, it was just like a, a magnetism, you know. Uh, it, I don't know. I, it was just a magnetism. Can't even describe it. Um, I went. I went from like thinking that just trying to be invisible. To just being myself, like trying to trying to be invisible or wanting to be invisible, but at the same time, when I got the opportunity, trying to qualify myself to get people to love and understand me, to kind of just sitting there and having things happen around me serendipitously, and uh, I don't know, like it, it's just so hard to explain. I even got into the relationship with in this year, just you know, almost just out of like uh, out of just like natural causes. You know, a lot of people think it's the outside of us, the external things that make things happen. You know, we're we're living in reaction to the world. You know, oh, that's a beautiful sunset. Wow. That's amazing. Like we're living in reaction to the world. And as a result, we feel like the world feels away. And so we're trying to do a bunch of things outside of us to make it to, you know, to turn that feeling in our favor. But the moment I start doing things, you know. The moment I start being in action and just being on my mission, being on my purpose, the world started reacting to me. And uh, it wasn't all the way yet, but my brain started to slow down. All the conversations that I was having in my brain just started to slow down. And it wasn't attention anymore. You know, think about it, they call uh, uh, people alphas and betas. And uh, if you think about like how the like a beta wave is shaped, it's very like 
a lot of peaks and you know trials and crests. It's going very rapidly. It's a high frequency to that wave. But an alpha wave is more slow. It's more steady. And uh, that's kind of the experience. Life was like kind of becoming more alpha. It was becoming more slow for me and becoming more balanced. Instead of like overthinking every moment, I was starting to just enjoy the moments. I was just starting to feel the moments. I was just starting to feel the excitement. And that was I was building that momentum. And it wasn't because of these things that were outside of me. Um, and so... The next thing that happened was I graduated and I remember going down to senior week and senior week. I was 18 years old and it was the first time I ever seen the ocean. I'm looking at the ocean. I'm like, oh, my God, like this is beautiful. But I'm coming towards at the same time a peak in the way that I feel. And I remember one time like and, and by the way, this is what, what I'm describing is, as we talked in other other podcasts, the journey to the top of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's interesting how that works. You know, uh, a lot of the ways that I was feeling, having my brain going a thousand miles per hour is because I didn't have, like, I didn't felt like I have had long love and belonging met. And so maybe I couldn't reach, you know, the level of status, have my status met. But that year I was just completely focused on my dreams and what I had in my heart. And so all those levels had aligned with me and had been met, you know, by default. But I remember, uh, my senior year. Um, it was, it was, I was, I was, uh, I was going to this party at the Ocean City. Uh, it was a party that some friends were at in this little, uh, I don't even know what you call it. Uh, it was just like, uh, it was a house, I guess it would be called, but the house was like up off the ground. Like it was built like on like a these, condo? yeah, a condo. <laughs> it was like a wooden scaffolding and a step stairway. It was a beautiful night, actually. Um, the night was, was the middle of summer, obviously. It was like June, right? right? June. It was, it was warm. Um, you could smell the ocean, and it was a light night. And what happened on this night, I can, I can, I can hardly even describe. But I remember walking up the stairs and walking to this party, and I could hear the boom, the boom, the boom of the uh, of the speaker going off, and I could tell it's a lot of energy inside. And normally, when I step into these environments, like the stimulus would just overwhelm me, and I would just kind of freeze up. But even before I got to the door. Uh, it was this guy I used to go to high school with, uh, had transferred down to school at Perry Hall. His name Bailey. He's like, oh, is Dallas here? Dallas Prater here? And he came out of the, the, the house and he kind of was like, walked beside me and we walked in and we started to dance to the, to the music, to the, to the Dougie and uh, do the Dougie. Uh, what else was going on? Oh, I think we got the bird flu. You know, uh, what other song was popping there? Yeah. Um, what's that song? Uh, she my trap queen, let her hit the band, oh. Like, it, it, was a, it was a function. And, uh, you know, so that day was a good day. And that day was a day, was one of the first days of my life. You know, obviously my entire senior year. Obviously my entire senior year was a beautiful experience. It was one of the, it was, it was not. No, it's it's all right. They'll, they'll, they'll pass. It was not one of the first years I enjoyed my life. It was the first year of my life that I enjoyed. It was the first year I've ever enjoyed in my life. Where I finally let go and was experiencing things happening in my favor. And so this, this, this day at the party, it was like the first party other than like my junior, uh, Alexis junior prom, my senior prom, her senior prom, which was after that actually. But it was one of the first parties I actually enjoyed. Like I remember laying down that night, like, man, I had fun. I had fun. And so me and the guys, it was me, uh, and Anthony, uh, and Colby, we went out on the boardwalk the next day and, I was just like, you know, let's let's go and play volleyball. And we went and bought a ball. And we were just at the net playing the volleyball. And uh, when we were playing the volleyball, another school from um, from uh, uh, down in uh, Prince George's County had came and started playing the volleyball court with us. And um, we had fun at that game. If you're listening to this, man, I don't care what age you are. Tell me, man, when's the last time you really had fun? Worry-free fun, where you felt light, where you felt free. That's what I'm talking about. You know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so we finished playing the volleyball game, and I remember that night um, we were we we had disbanded, but we were walking down the board not walk that night the day, or the day after, and we had seen the group. It was only three of us, but we seen the group, and the group had got bigger. And I remember yelling over the group like, "Hey!" and like, like. 
at that moment, like the group, like we, we merged kind of and just start all walking to the boardwalk and we integrated. And uh, I was the, 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 the key point of that integration. Like I made the integration happen. I literally, and this is, this might seem like weird to people who are like natural leaders, but this was like, I just walked over to the group and just started greeting everybody. I greet and shook hands with everybody in the group. And the polarity of the group was just, it, it was instant. Like I felt it like, I don't, I don't know what it was, but at, well, I do know what that was. I know how to describe it. But at this point in time, um, the entire group, like I remember, like it, it was, it, I can't even describe, like it was a stark feeling. Like everything around me just paused. I think that was in my, the first time in my life because everything, or maybe the second time, you know, because I had a moment of clarity that led to my relationship. But I don't know. This was like one of like I remember standing on the boardwalk that night and everything in my brain, all the stimulus in my brain that 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 gave me any inhibitions just stopped. It was like the part of my brain that had fears and worries and stresses and inhibitions had just broken. It just shattered at that moment. And the only thing that was left in my body was pure peace. Like it was just a pure concentrated peace. And you know, every interaction that happened was fluid. And, the you know, I felt like, uh, this is how I always describe it when I talk about it. I felt like, you know, let's say we're humans and we're like, we're like planets almost. I felt like my gravity as a planet had been multiplied very significantly. Like I like, they were like moons and like the, I was a planet and the gravity just like, just became undeniable. Became like a black hole. And, I felt for the first time like everybody in the group was aligning with me and were polar, you know, and I was the center of that polarity. And I really felt because I was like saying, hey, let's go this way. Let's go this way. And people would would do it. And that was something that was foreign to me. If I would have said, hey, let's go jump in the water, we probably would have all ran and jumped in the water. And this is an important experience because this is something that, you know, it, it, like I don't know it, if you ever felt like uh, maybe have some people drink. They call it Dutch courage. I've never gotten drunk, but is, is is that a similar situation? You know, when all your inhibitions and everything that you feel that's holding you back, that makes you scared, that makes you timid, just stop. When your brain goes from a million miles per hour to zero in a single moment, and suddenly you can do socially anything that you want in the world with great success, you know, and leadership just kind of came. And it was funny because I didn't have any more expertise. I didn't have any more wealth. I didn't have any more skill. I didn't have any more experience to anyone in that group. And things just kind of fell in place. And so what does this experience have to do with leadership? What is this experience to say? This experience is to say this. A lot of us think that leadership is on the basis of, or status rather, because that's all leadership is is on the basis of the ownership of something or a genetic predisposition. But when I owned all the, you know, the knowledge and the skills in wrestling, people still defer to Cullen. You know, when people go out in, in society and they try to make friendships or bonds on the basis of having money and having having fame, and that's why we chase money and fame, so we can be the leaders of our life, so we can be the leaders of our environment, so people defer to us. Um, when we try to do things on the basis of that, it's so often that we get the opposite effect. Is that something that you experience? You know that person in your group that always tries to qualify like, well, my parents are rich or I have money or did the... And instead of yeah, you actually being, <laughs> you know, but instead of being like infatuated with this person and their identity, you're just kind of annoyed. Well, here's what I was learning from RSD and Owen Cook and Tyler and all of them. You know, leadership, while leadership is it's not a muscle and it's 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 not a genetic predisposition and it's not a, a bunch of hoarding things um let's just just break down what happens first off when you go into an environment or if you're in a tribe because that's all we like human beings were cavemen at one point 
they were cavemen and the cavemen are just pack animals like any other animal in the planet that roams in a pack and what pack animals do is they have in groups and out groups the in groups are the people who are cool and everybody wants to be around and the leader of the in group is the alpha male and the out group are kind of like the outcast in human evolution if you weren't cool with the alpha male or if you weren't in the in group and you were outcast you know the lone wolf dies you don't want to be in that group and so in any environment we go we enter in we try to gauge you know um based off a lot of different factors what is the in group and what is the out group and the in group is really defined based on the alpha male and it's funny because a lot of people think status even though it existed before cars before money before all these other things is a symptom of these things or pre, pre uh, genetic predisposition throughout history even though the, the, through, despite the lack of these things there was always a leader even in nature there there are there are let's say a bear or something i, I don't know if bears a pack it was like a chimpanzee a silverback gorilla you know they defined the alpha even without these social constructs that we've designed and so even in that statement you can see that status is something that exists beyond the the hoarding of you know, money and in 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 cars and things like that. It's not something that you can buy from out into the world, because in these gorilla packs, in in any pack, which human is a pack, it's inherent. It's something that you have. Um, but but trying to get kind of get to what I'm saying is, is uh, you know, a lot of us, our brains going a million miles per hour, because while we've the modern world has developed our brains haven't really evolved with it and so you know we're as human beings we're trying to go towards reward and away from punishment right and we see punishment like where where punishment you know in a, in a caveman tribe is defined as a predator you know uh our brain hasn't really adapted to the modern world um and so where we don't have like a modern like uh, a modern example of what would be defined as a predator we take modern things and group them in that category anyway like when people get stage fright there's no threat in the room but the human brain hasn't developed with the way society has and so we perceive it like it's a threat in the room like we perceive it like it's something wrong um and that's why you might have a morbid fear fear of stage fright it's almost like your brain saying there is a chance that i will die like if you're like this is the thing the outcast dies, the people who stay in the pack and the mass, they live. And so your brain gets into a weird state every time you feel like there's a chance that you're going to go into the outpack, out, you know, being the out, be an outcast. And that's a perfect example of how our brain hasn't evolved with the society that we're in. Because in the society that we're in, if you're, in, if you're an outcast, if you're not in the in group, you'll survive. You won't die. That threat has been erased, but our brain hasn't really developed to account for that. And so we always feel like we're going to die even though there's not a real threat in the room. And that's why when you walk into an environment, maybe a school, maybe a club, maybe a mall, maybe whatever it is, your brain goes a thousand miles per hour because it's like, oh, threat, 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 outgroup, outgroup, outgroup. And, you know, uh, you live in a state of of reaction. You know, you go into a, a club or something like that and it, the music and all these different people and you're trying to gauge you know, the in-groups and out-groups of the room and trying desperately not to be in that out-group. And it causes you to, your brain to really run a million miles per hour when you have all these fears and anxieties that really aren't based in something real, okay? But here's the thing. The the, the alpha of any group, they, they create the in-group. That's the funny part. The in-group is centered around them. And I, I'm not really structuring my thoughts as, 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 as crispy as I like in this section. But just to kind of get what I'm get to what I'm saying is the difference between whether you're alpha and the center of an in-group and 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 uh, beta in like in the out-group is whether you're in action versus whether you're in reaction. Because if you think back to the story of me wrestling, um, like I'm trying to like like I'm trying to like qualify my, when I, even when I'm trying to win. When I'm trying to gain material, you know, wins and 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 
uh, knowledge in wrestling. I'm trying to gain status. It's in reaction to other people. I'm trying to qualify myself to them. And think about like a job interview. When you try to qualify yourself to them, instantly you're placed, therefore, in a subservient point of view because you value their opinions higher. You know, and what I experienced on the other side of the spoon, um, on, on the flip side of the pancake or whatever you want to call it, um, is when that qualifying system shut off, people detect within you a wholesomeness. You know, they detect in you a steadiness, a, a, a non-neediness. You know, and when you hold that frame, suddenly people feel like, you know, that's 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 the essence of high status. I don't know else to say it. That's the essence of high status. When you go around somebody that has everything and they don't need some, and, and that's why people say, oh, girls are gold diggers. Girls like celebrities because they're rich. No, the fact of the matter is this. Someone who's rich and famous instantly, if they're really rich and famous and they, they've been treated that way their entire life, their system of qualifying themselves to anybody is shut off. And that then that's what increases their gravity. It's not the cars. It's not the money. It's not anything like that. People don't go after people because they're rich. They go after them because rich people exude the qualities of somebody that's high status. You know, if you're in reaction, then somebody's acting. Somebody's proactive. Somebody's making you react. And if you're, you know, not in reaction, people don't have another choice because they're going to gauge your body language and they're going to become like they're, they're going to be in reaction to you. And so... One of the things that RSD told me about uh, in high status, one of the things that I took from them is, you know, the three, the real three qualities or the, the multiple, you know, the most important qualities of somebody who has gravity, as I, as I, you know, described it and is a leader is they hold their frame. Their version of reality is the truth. And it's funny because this is back to, I went to the expert secrets novel and, uh, you know, one of the traits of the attractive character in a mass movement is remain absolute certainty. You want to remain absolute certainty at all times because the one who remains absolutely certain wins. Even in sales, I've sold over the phone and, you know, whether, you know, the difference between a successful sale and a non-successful sale, like the story of Stephen Larson when he was selling the pest control door to door, uh, the moment he learned what was in the pest control and started to doubt, um, what he was actually selling the moment he had some uncertainty about it was the moment his sales plummeted even though he was the number one on a sales team because he absolutely believed in the product before it's the same way the person who has the most certainty in a social setting always wins people would refer to him they're the leader so you're either in reaction or you're in action in your life at all times and that is the sole basis of how the world will be facilitated around you. And so they hold the frame. That's one thing. You know, the second thing is, the, uh, what is it? Uh, they're not trying to qualify themselves. I guess that's holding the frame. They're self-amused. You know, they, it, it, just a general idea is this. You know, like I said, I'm kind of bumbling with my thoughts, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Um, just the general idea is that you're whole and you're solid within yourself. And you can test this on any given night. In psychology, we learned about something called... Um, uh, what is it? Systematic desensitization. Okay. And so essentially what systematic desensitization is, is when you expose yourself to a stimulus over and over and over again until it no longer has any meaning. And so what had occurred to me, uh, it wasn't building the muscle of leadership. It was just, okay, I think there are threats in social situations. But what I did was I went out and went out and went out and exposed myself to the feelings. And eventually your brain clicks and realizes, wait, there are no predators here. There's nothing going to happen to me if no one likes me here. And this is what uh, the team over there at RSD calls uh, being in state, having momentum. Go out on any given night, go in a club or something, start dancing. Start talking to people. Just back to back to back to back to back. Eventually, what will happen is that, you know, your brain will slow down and you'll start to be able to receive and enjoy the moment that you're in. You'll be in state. You'll have momentum. You'll stop trying to qualify yourself and you'll start, you'll go back and find a stillness, a clarity, and a wholeness in yourself that you haven't experienced before. And immediately in that night, even though you don't own anything, even though you don't, you didn't work on the quote unquote muscle of leadership, because you've come to a place where you're certain about yourself, where you're holding the frame, where you're holding your thoughts, bless you, where you where you where you're not trying to qualify, and, and this is this is one one I was looking for, and where you're unneedy, 
bless you, and where you're unneedy, then suddenly your gravity will be something different. This is one of the most life-changing idea ideologies I've experienced in my life. Like your gravity will just appear, and suddenly everything in terms of the social environment, people people will literally come to you. Would just be easy. It'll just be completely easy. You've probably had this if you're like my age. You've probably gone through college. You had a lot of partying nights, and all those partying nights where you get wild, you just kind of let go. And the world, because you're present to the moment, it just seems so much more bright, so much more you know, it's so much more. You're so much more satisfied by every little thing. You know, it's weird. Even you can gauge how much your perception, like how far you are in state. Because when you come home and you look in the mirror, you'll look significantly different than what you look like when you left. You've experienced this, right? This is, this is a weird phenomenon, but it, but it, but it happens. You you know, you even have your gravity even pulls your own self in. <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I don't know. I hope I'm explaining this adequately, but uh, you know, the whole idea is this. You know, in wrestling, when I started as a freshman and I got on the mat. The match was over in a blink of an eye. And it not it wasn't because the match was quick, it's because my mind was going everywhere. And I just like I just remember like feeling so many different stimulus and not really knowing and thinking so many different things at one time. But towards my senior year, and I thought it was because I had wrestling knowledge. But when I got closer to my senior year, like as opposed to that freshman year where I could only see what's going on in the match, I couldn't hear my coaches, I couldn't hear the audience. When I was a senior and I was pretty good at wrestling. Um, I could hear the crowds. I could hear my coach. Everything was slowed down. It was like I was in a freaking matrix. It was honestly like I was in a matrix. Like it was like, it, it, most matches, it was at a point, it was so slow where it, was, it wasn't even a challenge. It was like, it was a weird thing. And, and, and this had happened not because I gained a bunch of knowledge, but because, I, because the knowledge had given me a base for my certainty. Or I gained a lot of certainty through having the, you know, a positive result back to back to back to back to back. And having been systematically desensitized to everything that I feared and so like that's exactly what I mean like everything you know it you know it's like when you they call it being in the zone you ever been in the zone in the sport it's uh the exact same thing except for in life um so you might feel like uh you know you're not the leader that you want to be or you can't be a leader because you weren't born that way or because you didn't collect a bunch of stuff. And so how could you ever lead a mass movement? How can I be that attractive character? Uh, and it's funny because, you know, a lot of the people who are leaders and attractive characters of mass movements like Russell Brunson, Frank Kern, they, Russell, uh, Stephen Larson, they struggle a huge amount with one-on-one interactions. They strut, they're very introverted. They struggle a lot. And this is their words, not mine. I don't know them personally or anything like that. But they struggle a huge amount with socializing. But in their fields, because they've, you know, because because they have absolute certainty about what it is that they know and what it is they teach, you know, and maybe that certainty is given to them through their accomplishments. But you don't have to wait till you have accomplishments because they have absolute certainty and they know who they are and they don't have to qualify to anybody. Their gravity as an expert and their clarity and joy and, and wholeness as an expert is undeniable. The fact of the matter is this. A lot of people live life and they go and they, you know, and this was this was me. They tell a joke and when they tell a joke, and, and this is also another thing that I realized when I became funny. Um, they tell a joke and um, I used to, I, what I used to do is tell a joke and I wouldn't laugh at the joke. I would only laugh when other people laugh. Like I would tell a joke and then wait for people to laugh. And if now no one laughs, yeah, and that's what I'm saying, and that's part of it, you know, self amusement because, you know, that's just, that's just one of the qualities. I don't have the entire sheet list, but it's like un- non neediness. You hold the frame, you self amuse. Something I learned from them, you know, if you, you know, no one's gonna laugh, and you're waiting for people to laugh at your joke, you know. So a lot of people say statements and say ideas, and they let it hang out into the world with uncertainty, like waiting for people to respond before they feel good about it, before they feel confident in it. And it's that exact dynamic that makes everything bomb. You won't start hitting it back to back to back to back to back to back and feeling like the leader until you really work on that aspect of yourself. Work on feeling present to the moment. Work on feeling 
You know, like you don't need anything right now. Work on feeling non-needy. Work on feeling centered in yourself and balanced in yourself. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't meditate. But one of the things that they said, you know, helps with it is meditation. So if you want to pick up meditating, because uh, meditating is really just the act of practicing being in the moment. You know, and, you know, it, that's a good practice. And it works, in my personal opinion, even though I haven't really done a bunch of it. I've done meditation sometimes. Uh because when you're in the moment, when you practice being in the moment, uh, your brain can't run a million miles per hour because your brain's running a million miles per hour because it's thinking about what could happen, which is in the future or what has happened. Do they know that I did such and such, which is in the past? But when you get into the present, which effectively is what being in state or being in the zone is, the challenge is just at the right slope for you to struggle, but accomplish at your greatest peak. It's just producing presence. That's all it is. Um, this was like a lot uh, a lot less formal of an episode. I hope I made sense. I know a lot of it didn't probably make sense uh, as I you know it's particularly the ways I transition from topic to topic to topic uh, to topic but uh we might redo this episode later. Uh, I really explained it the best way I know how. But, um, yeah, that's really all I have to say for this episode, man. Um, if you think you're not a leader, man, everybody's a leader. Everybody's a leader. You just have to decide that you're a leader. And you just have to always be certain in a situation. You know, there's no reason you take a guy that can't socialize or can't get girls and no one likes him. And, you know, and this is what the RSD team would do. And then they would come back, you know, that same day. And the situation would be totally flipped. You think he changed that much in, the, in, in a day? You think he built his leadership muscle in a day? It ain't happened. What happens was that he made the decision to be certain in who it is he was. He made the decision to hold the frame, to decide that in every environment he goes in, he has status because he says he does. And no matter what situation you're in, you're getting the results you're getting from other people. People aren't mean to you. People are just treating you how you think you are. People are just aligning with your own self-perception. You think you suck, so people want to treat you like you suck. How are they supposed to love you? How are they supposed to believe in you if you don't love and believe in yourself? But here's the thing. I love you. I do. I believe in you. I do. Um, Not more than me. That's a joke. But, uh... You know, uh, man, it's so much to say. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut this one short because I'm just rambling at this point. I'm just trying to get the point home as much as possible. But if you don't, if, if, if I'm not making sense of what I'm saying, go and look up Owen Cook on YouTube, RSD Tyler on YouTube, RSD Free Tour. Um, these are a lot of their ideas. They explain it a lot better than I do um, because he's been doing it for a decade. He's been doing it for two decades at this point, actually. And he's, he's a master of uh, social interaction and things like that. This is just me explaining it in poor man's terms. Um, this is somebody I really look up to and uh, has changed the course of my life with his content, his ideas, and somebody I want to continue to support and watch, somebody I really aspire to emulate and want to be like. Uh, probably one of the greatest minds in, in all of humanity. One of the greatest minds in all of humanity, for sure. And I think you all should listen to him. Owen Cook on YouTube. O O W E N C O O K. Uh, I want to end this by saying, look, you are a leader. You are an expert and you are ready to build a mass movement and a tribe and community around your central idea. And the best way to do that is, guess what? The best way to do that is through something called a sales memoir. It's like the next evolution of what a book should be. Traditional books, they suck. They're trash. Traditional publishing sucks. They're trash. Uh, traditional publishing, I, I read somewhere that only one out of 25,000 authors actually get published by a traditional publisher per year. And... If it sounds like anything, I was talking to my girlfriend the other day about the acting industry uh, because she, she's an actor. And um, a lot of the acting industry is going to these these uh, these um, these these agents, getting agents and managers and waiting for them to accept you so you can get in the game. And then you got to wait on the director to accept you. And so a lot of people who are good actors, a lot of people with ideas, uh, they're not able to push their acting talents and skills and dreams out into the world. In publishing, I realized because of that conversation is exactly the same. All publishers do is just choke up on creativity and really manage and marginalize the amount of ideas that can be pushed out into society. And so people write their books. The traditional way people write and publish their books is all wrong. And a sales memoir is like the next iteration of that. And I would love to talk a lot about that. And so 
the best way, in my personal opinion, just to reiterate, to build a tribe and community around your central idea is to put it in something called a, called a sales memoir. And it does it in a profitable way, by the way. And so if you want a sales memoir written along with a six-month launch campaign to get that thing out into the world and start to build your mass movement, um, we're not accepting any clients right now. I mean, not at all. So, but we're going to put the team together. We're going to be ready to launch again soon. And so if you want to be in the first wave of people to get your your sales memoir written and your tribe and community built, particularly if you're an entrepreneur that has a business and uh, you want to elevate to the next level, you know, you want to be someone special like Russell Brunson and Owen Cook, I think we can get this done for you. And so if you want to be, reserve your seat and be part of the first wave of people that have their first, you know, their memoir written, go to www.memoirlaunch.com slash launch list. And uh, it'll be a little quiz to see if we are a good, you know, fit to work together. But then you'll be able to sign up for the list and reserve your seat and be part of the first wave of people. www.memoirlaunch.com slash launch list. For more info about that, you can find, you can message me. You can find me on Facebook at Dallas S. Prater. Dallas S. Prater. That's my new fan page I just made. Um, Or you can find me at Junie Prayer, J-U-N-I-E-P-R-A-Y-E-R on Instagram. And I'd love to talk to you about all that. And, uh finesse you out of a lot of money um yeah this is dallas this is the grand design and this podcast has been all about becoming the leader or deciding you're the leader rather uh or that you have you qualify to lead a mass movement you don't need anything you don't need you don't have to be born with anything all you have to do is make the decision all you have to do is pull the trigger i appreciate you listening appreciate the time I hope wherever you're at, you're happy. You're enjoying your time or you're fighting, you're struggling to get happy. I hope you're doing the thing, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Grand design. True or false designers, ghostwriters in the modern era are completely outdated and no one should ever use a ghostwriter again. Okay, now look, I understand everyone wants to write a book because it is the most effective way to build tribe and community around your central ideas in a profitable way. I understand that. It is the best way to push your ideas out into the world in the form of mass movements. And this is throughout history. Think of the Communist Manifesto. Think of the Bible. Think of Mein Kampf. You know, every time you see an entrepreneur, ask him, how did he get started? He'll say, rich dad, poor dad. You know, he'll say, think and grow rich. The best way to induct people into your tribe is through a book. And there is no denying that. But a lot of people, they turn to ghostwriters because there is a gap between the ideas in their head and the words on paper. And that gap is filled with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And I understand that. These are some of the things that I've experienced. Tell me if this is familiar for you. Man, Writing my first book, it was just like a soup of ideas in my head, and I didn't know where to start. Is that something you've experienced? Like, it's like ideas floating around, and you don't really know how to structure it. Is that something that you've been through? Like, where do I even put this in this chapter? And then all these blogs, they make a freaking outline. No one wants to make a freaking outline. You know, I could spend that valuable time I spent making an outline actually writing the book. How about that? Another thing is time. No one has the freaking time to write a real book. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, you have business to take care of or a a work to go to or family or actually life to enjoy that's not sitting at a freaking laptop. You know, no one wants to spend 365 days of the year, the entire summer sitting there two, three hours a day crunching in words on a freaking laptop. It's completely redundant. It's ridiculous. You know, Um, that's just even daunting to think about. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months to put a book together in one that you're not even sure how to publish or market yet. It's an insane amount of work for nothing. And another reason is that some people just might not be good at writing. Just simple and flat out. Is that something that you've experienced? Like, think about it. Like, sometimes writing is just freaking hard, and not everybody was born a writer. No one's born. And so, for these reasons, for these reasons, People turn to these writing coaches and these ghost writers, but, and this is coming from the position of a former ghost writer who's ghost written for people with businesses, okay? Uh, they never really get what they're asking for. 
And the reason for that is this, and tell me if you've experienced this, like, also, have you worked with a ghostwriter and they've given you something back and you're just like, eh, well, there's like 100% of my clients probably have felt that way throughout history. And the reason is because ghostwriting is like playing a game of telephone. You know, when you tell somebody a phrase and then you tell another person, you tell another person, and by the time you get back to the line, you probably paid, played this in high school, by the time you get to the back of, you know, the last person, they say the phrase and it's something completely different. When you pass your ideas through the mind of another human being, those ideas will not come out their mind or come out their, in their writing without being tainted by their own mind. It's like telling a painter to paint your girlfriend and giving them like descriptions and things like that. Um, not really going to work out. You'll probably still accept it like, eh, this is the best we can get with the system that we're using, but it's not going to be the product that you actually ask for because it's coming through his perception. And because of that, ghostwriters are flawed. And I say this and I admit this as a ghostwriter, but I have good news for you. We're not living in the 1800s anymore where we need scribes. <laughs> you know, we don't, ghostwriters should never be used by anyone on this face of this planet after this year. You know, you know? so I have a solution for you. This is the way that we do it at Memoir Launch. Think of your book, whatever your book might be, however big it might be, I don't care if your book is 500 pages long. That's a big, time-consuming, expensive, and complex thing. And on top of that, ghostwriters like to cost 25 grand for the subpar work they do, okay? Think about your book. 500 pages is a massive, complex thing, right? Now, I, I like to be challenging. So I believe we can get your book done from cover to cover for way less expensive than a ghostwriter. And exactly in your voice, crystal clear, 100% satisfaction in a span of seven days or less. Now, you might be like, uh, that's kind of impossible. No, it isn't. We don't live in the 1900s anymore. We live in the future. And so how do we do that at Memoir Launch? The way we do that, just to keep it simple and not too complex, we rely on voice writing technology. We rely on you know machine learning, artificial intelligence to take that gap between the ideas in your head in actual text and shrink it. Like we like we crush it into a span of seven days through new technology and methods. Let me explain to you how this process kind of works. You have these soup of ideas in your head and you don't know how to organize anything from anything. We get a little specialized team for you, maybe one or two people, and we do an interview series with you to bounce back and forth and kind of organize your ideas in a way that's actually like, uh, it reads well, one, and step two, it's actually effective because a lot of books you put them out into the world and they're like no one cares about them it's like you know they're not effective because those are books a book is like a letter what we write for you is called a sales memoir i'm not trying to get too complicated so i'm going to just completely explain this very briefly a book is like a letter a sales memoir is like a sales letter sales memoirs are the books that indoctrinate your audience and makes them join your tribe by default books like, like, like I said, Dot Com Secrets. You read Dot Com Secrets by Russell Brunson, you will become a funnel hacker because it's structured in that way. Most people write, read the Bible, they will become a Christian. Most people in the 1940s, they read the Communist Manifesto because of the way the ideas in the book were structured and you will become a communist. But how, it is, how is it that we structure our ideas in a way that reads well and place them in a book in a way that also indoctrinates? So that's step one. It's a small little interview series. You know, you kind of just talk about everything that you like. <laughs> you know, you, whatever you rant about on a daily basis, you just rant to us. A lot of people describe this process as therapeutic or whatever. And after we do that entire process, we take the audio. And all we do, no matter if your book is 200, 300, 400 pages long, we just feed it to the AI. And immediately it pops out something that does not require a bunch of freaking editing from a freaking expensive editor because these editors are ridiculously priced. It doesn't require a $25,000 ghostwriter. It doesn't require any of that. So what happens after that? Well, you get your manuscript first and foremost. And then second, that same team comes along with you in the third phase of the process. We publish the book for you. And then we begin to work on a little marketing campaign to actually get that idea in your head out into the world in a form of a mass movement, okay? Like all the thought leaders in the modern world has. How Tony Robbins has a book, how Russell Brunson has a book, how Frank Curran, everyone has a book. And it's following this same strategy and process they, has, they have. 
Now, you might be thinking, this is too good to be true. Uh, <laughs> you know, go see for yourself. You know, if you're interested in this process, if you're interested in being part of the memoir launch beta, and it is in beta, and because it's in beta, you're getting a very, very, very one-time extreme discount. But if you want to be part of this beta and potentially get your book done, because it depends on your schedule also, in seven days flat, perfectly in your voice, and deliver it to your house in a hard copy and published, then just click the link in the bio below of any of these podcast episodes. It'll be a link to like a website where you can join the waiting list. And when Memoir Launch is ready to launch, we'll start calling people on the waiting list. It's first come, first serve. And so if you sign up late, well, you're going to get called pretty late. Um, but sign up for the waiting list. It'll be a link below. It'll be the only link below. And uh, once you sign up for the waiting list, we'll be in contact with you shortly and we'll help you launch your first sales memoir to the world okay well uh i don't really know if i have anything else to say about that sounds like a cool process though right well this is uh dallas from memoir launch and i just explained to you the best way to profitably push your ideas out into the world in a form of mass movements so like i said if you're interested in that click the link uh here in the podcast notes in the description whatever you want to call it and man i really 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 uh the business you know the mission of this business there's a handicap you know on writers in the world there's a huge gap between id and text and a lot of people are handicapped they can't clear that gap and it's the mission of this business to invent technology that erases that gap once and for all so I want you to be part of this cause, man. I really look forward to speaking to you. I look forward to working with you. I look forward to like knocking this out of the park and welcoming the future with open arms. So I'm not going to go on on and on, but uh, like I said, if you're interested in being part of the beta, if you're interested in being part of the future, um, click down below. Uh, for the beta also, the entire process of marketing your book, um, designing campaigns to actually launch that thing out to the world, completely free, by the way, completely free. And so, click down in the bio below. It'll be a link down there. Uh, without further ado, you know I suck at closing things out. This is Dallas from Grand Design and from Memoir Launch. And I look forward to speaking with you and actually helping you get these ideas out, man. Peace.